Uh, first up is Brian Points. He's going to give a talk titled The Quibbling Rabble, The History and Future of U.S. Housing Policy. Brian is the president of Points Consulting, a firm that specializes in economic development and real estate consulting. He has a master's in economics from the University of California in Santa Barbara, and you can learn more about him and his work at points-consulting.com. So please welcome Brian. So as you know from my intro, I'm an economist. Uh, to give you a bit more detail, over the past three years, many of the projects that Points Consulting, my company, has worked on has focused on issues such as housing studies, feasibility studies, land use, that type of thing. In the course of doing that, I've read countless comprehensive plans and zoning ordinances for communities literally from coastal Georgia to coastal Washington. If I had to estimate, I'd say I've probably read 40 to 50 different uh, zoning ordinances from different places. So I think I know a few things about this, and I've read all of that boring stuff so that you guys don't have to. Uh, as I did this, there's a number of things that started to bother me. So I've, I've kind of used this lecture as an opportunity to kind of exorcise my own demons about this whole thing that bothers me so much. Uh, this is not primarily in relation to any local land use uh, disputes that we may have. So, you know, I'm sure you guys are familiar with some of the Christchurch Troy CUP, for example. And believe it or not, I actually was not even thinking about that when I put this together, which in a weird way, as we'll see at the end of the lecture, gives more credibility to my point. But obviously it has bearing on that, so happy to answer questions you might have on it. And so, just so you know my priors, I don't label myself as a libertarian, but some reason they keep giving me a platform anyway. Uh, but I do believe that and mainly the reason I would say that is because I do believe that the government plays an essential role in controlling externalities, which is a fancy economist word that I'll get to shortly. I am a small government and conservative, and I always give ear to what libertarian positions are because I think it does very well at explaining counterfactuals, which is another fancy economist word. But basically that means libertarians are good at imagining a world where the government has less control over things and somebody else has to deal with government-like problems. And that's not something that a lot of other camps are good at, but uh, libertarians are. So it's a good kind of uh, reflection to look at. Um, so uh, case in point, I'm not fundamentally against zoning. Maybe some of you are. I just think that zoning and land entitlement in the United States has completely gone off the rails. So my interest in this particular topic started with one fundamental question, which is this. If I have a deed on a property, why does the government at any level federal, state, local, have a role in telling me what I can do with it? Maybe you guys have wondered the same question. What I discovered in this search is that zoning puts at odds at two very time-honored American ideals, property rights and property values. And holding, it's holding together those two things, and it's actually picking up strength because Americans are willing to give up one in favor of the other. So, in other words, in our pursuit of protecting property or protecting property values, we're giving up a lot on our property rights. That should hopefully make some more sense in the next 25 minutes. Uh, so just for a moment, let's stop and discuss the number of our constitutional rights that are compromised by zoning policy. By my count, there's at least three. And if there's legal scholars here, they can debate me later. But the three, the Fourth Amendment, regulates unreasonable search and seizure. The case here being that landowners are sometimes required to forsake 
potentially the most profitable or highest and best use of a property due to the zoning rules, right? You can't make it a commercial thing because you're in a residential district. Uh, the Fifth Amendment, which stipulates that citizens shall not be deprived of property uh, for public use without just compensation. So it's kind of along the same lines as the Fourth Amendment. Uh, government regulates, uh, limits the use to a degree that the value is deteriorated. This right is infringed upon. And the Fourteenth Amendment, this is the most damning of all, the so-called Equal Protection Clause is very problematic for zoning regulations, which are frequently imposed in an inconsistent manner to, certain, to limit certain types of citizens over others. As we'll get into, this is in fact getting worse and worse by the day in America. Uh, and in fact, the 14th Amendment has been used routinely to deal with zoning issues as it was during the civil rights era, when for example, you had a lot of um, HOAs or deed restrictions saying this is a white-only district, right? Okay, with that ground set, let's discuss the history. This is not an exhaustive history, but I've sought to lay out the essential components. Zoning serves an essential purpose that regardless of one's political leanings, people seem to have a yearning for it. Inherently, I think we can all recognize that it doesn't make a lot of sense to have a smoke-belching factory next to a church, next to a single-family home. It just doesn't feel right. So that's why we have all kind of gravitated towards this thing. And for those reasons, some prototype of zoning has existed throughout history and across all cultures, though its controls have escalated basically in perfect correlation with urbanicity. So as cities get more dense, zoning gets more and more complicated and more and more restrictive. So in the ancient world, these controls were pretty mild, as both cities and industries were pretty modest sized. Uh, in the ancient Roman world, for example, many residents also, residences also served the secondary purpose as a business center as well. All right, so you go to your shoemaker and he's working out of his house. Think of that kind of thing, or a wood carver, whatever. But industries that were considered disruptive, um, so you could think of a brickyard, a cemetery, things like that, were only allowed in certain districts. So there, in a very mild sense, we start to see this was happening centuries ago. Um, interestingly, businesses that had a milder but still noxious impact on the environment, such as tanneries or cheese smokeries, that's actually a thing. Fuchshan's probably like that idea. Uh, were allowed to exist in residential areas, but the residents themselves were expected to work out private contracts between each other if there was a negative effect on their neighbors. That's interesting. We'll come back to that. Where zoning really picked up steam was during the Industrial Revolution. Suddenly, instead of solo button maker next door, you're dealing with a factory cranking out thousands of buttons a day. That's a different level of uh, intensity and impact. Uh, the limited controls on this led to tremendous conflict among wealthy landowners in places like Germany and England, where the Industrial Revolution was most active. Uh, and oftentimes, factory owners would want to place their businesses close to where they lived, which means you're immediately getting some conflict between higher-end houses and factories. Uh, so this led to a reaction by homeowners groups to push industry out into its own areas of town. Around the same time, we started to see highly deleterious effects of high density and lack of zoning on the working poor. So just stop and imagine that you lived in London in 1815 when the population was 1.4 million and you had uh, no public sewer, uh, no transit system, no limitations on smoke and water pollution, right? It was ugly. 
it was part of the reason that people felt like this was necessary. And it's not surprising that there was a lot of health consequence, negative health consequences from all these things. Uh, so this brings us up to the modern age. The Enlightenment brought a desire for more sophisticated and technocratic methods for managing issues like urban, urban sprawl and pollution. This is the point at which essential categories of modern zoning started to appear. Residential, commercial, industrial. We still use these terms today. The idea for most European countries was not to completely separate these uses, but to introduce rules based on safety and public good that would contribute to a more thriving and orderly society. Industrialists were also in favor of this because they had begun to also feel that squeeze and the pressure of land use uh, from residential purposes. So although the articulation varied by country, most European countries thought about land use primarily in terms of impact rather than exclusively by category. So as opposed to American modern zoning code, where one could not be able to, say, pop up a Denny's in the Fort Russell district, right? But uh, in uh, the early modern Europe, you could, for, for example, put a tavern in a largely residential area, okay? Because they think, well, you know, this isn't harming, right? This is maybe perhaps even contributing to, to the thriving of this neighborhood. Uh, you still see traces of this, particularly in places like France, where this convention still dominates. There are other gray areas here, however. Think of the category, category of a brewery, for example. So a brewer in Manchester in 1850 would not be able to operate by right out of his own home like he would have a century earlier. But now he would have to go to a town council, for example, or a planning commission or whatever it was they called it, and they would ask him questions about what hours are you operating? How many bottles of beer are you producing? How much traffic are you going to produce? Because they wanted to make sure that they weren't going to produce a negative impact on a residential area. So, enter discretion. Sometimes the answer is yes, sometimes the answer is no. And it's not exclusively based on the category of the business. This is a great oversimplification, but this is generally where the Europeans have settled in their land use rules today. The federal government sets planning guidelines which are fleshed out by a local government who has an overarching plan about the direction the city is going and what's, what it's going to need over the next 20 to 50 years. There's some variation. The French are really into big public works projects. The English are really into preventing sprawl and maintaining the green belts around their cities. Uh, the Germans took the next step in the late 19th century by bringing these prototypes of control into the modern age. In true German scientific fashion, becoming much more explicit and controlled about what was allowable and not allow allowable, and greatly multiplying the number of zoning districts in the process. Enter America. Odd as it may seem, prior to World War I, the Germans were seen as the height of first world sophistication in statecraft. It, so if you want to ask the fundamental question of where did zoning in the United States come from, it came from Weimar, Germany. Um, U.S. zoning policy is largely modeled after their lead. Firstly, it should be mentioned that the Founding Fathers, by and large, did not envision America with large metropolitan centers, adorned with skyscrapers, and dotted with massive uh, manufacturing plants. Uh, this, was, this is not just an extrapolation based on where they were. This was very much by design and what they wanted to maintain with the country. So to quote Thomas Jefferson, for example, the mobs of great cities add just so much support of pure government as soars to the strength of the human body. So in other words, it was not just a passing fad. They wanted to keep it that way. Uh, America's rurality was by design, and it lasted for far longer than it did in Europe. 
In the mid-19th century, for example, nine out of 10 people lived outside of cities in the United States. The idea of a yeoman farmer in a largely agrarian society was upheld not just by the founding fathers, but reinforced over the centuries via issues such as Louisiana Purchase, Manifest Destiny, 40 Acres and a Mule, and the endless romanticization about our unspoiled lands in America. At the same time, America could not resist the movement towards urbanization and the necessity for more rules that come along with that. Yet, unlike the Europeans, if there's one thing that red-blooded Americans hate above all else, it is giving government officials discretion. These unique philosophies and conditions gave rise to unique innovations that Americans contributed to land use and zoning. I'll point out three things on this front. Number one, implementing more hard and fast rules on what can and cannot be allowed in any given district. This was the American choice of how to handle land use conundrums, which at the time seemed the best way to avoid the potential for bias, favoritism, and government incompetency. Number two, removal of control from the federal to the local government, which allegedly creates more local control and accountability. Number three, America loves single-family homes. You can see that, trace, you know, we go back to what we are talking about, you know, um, spreading across the West, you get this land, you get your home, you own it. I'd say later in the 20th, or early 20th century, there was also a blend put in there on the, uh, the concepts of anti-communism, right? Ownership is better than, than being a renter, because if you own something, you're not a communist, right? Uh, we added extra layers to zoning code to separate high-density housing, such as apartments, from single-family districts. This is an expansive topic that could be an entirely different lecture unto itself. Uh, in my opinion, the preference for single-family homes is not a bad thing in and of itself. What is a bad thing is outlawing anything except for single-family homes. Most zoning code today still includes some form of statement justifying the purpose of zoning based on the interest of, quote, protecting the value of single-family homes. In other words, keep the apartments away from us. This is really weird when you think about it. Right? So we're fundamentally saying that the Constitution says we're going to treat everybody fairly and we're going to let people do what they want with the things that they own. But also we're going to make sure that these people get extra good treatment. All this has lasted until today. As one example, I'm finishing a study right now on a community in Kentucky that has a 290-page zoning code, uh, 30 pages of which are committed to defining every, every very specific type of business and building that is allowable within the 18 very specific zoning districts. So, for example, you couldn't possibly allow a cigar manufacturer in a location that would be suitable to a cigarette manufacturer. I'm not kidding. That's in the code. But, yeah, it is Kentucky, so I guess maybe that does make some sense. Uh, and to this day, in most cities in the U.S., 40 to 60 percent of a city's land use is dedicated to single-family homes. So I don't mean by that that it's that that's what's there. What I mean by that is that it would literally be illegal to put anything else in those areas. So if you wanted to put a duplex in what was defined as an exclusively a single-family district, good luck. It's not legal. All right, the economic theory. <laughs> now that we've briefly outlined the history, let's discuss some basic economic concepts that relate to situations like these. Land use is primarily about controlling externalities. Externality is a term economists use to describe uh, when third parties are affected by a commercial activity without accounting for it in the cost of the transaction. 
So some common examples include pollution, right? That's negative. Uh, one party does it, other people pay for it through having to experience the, the pollution, but it's not accounted for in the transaction that produced the pollution. Higher education is often described as a positive externality. People get educated, they're better citizens, they're better contributors, they produce more wealth, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so if your neighbor owns, uh, or let's go over a few examples here. Um, so you can also break this down to the housing level, although it's often applied at a commercial level. So if your neighbor bakes bread every morning, saturating the neighborhood with delicious smells, positive or negative externality? Positive. You didn't pay anything for it though, right? Okay. Uh, now let's say that your neighbor owns a large, hideously designed building where the dumpster is constantly overflowing. Negative or positive? Negative. Good job, George. Correct. <laughs> so you can now see how this applies to land use and zoning, right? <clears throat> so... Embedded in the American model of zoning is the belief that the multifamily, multifamily housing units are unfairly benefiting from the surroundings of single-family neighborhoods. It should not be surprising that we have achieved such strong bifurcated distribution between single-family and multifamily, given that the Supreme Court decision itself included the following statement. This is from Euclid versus Ambler, 1926. Uh, very uh, watershed case on the topic of zoning. So here's what the judge said. With particular reference to apartment houses, it is pointed out that the development of detached houses sections is great, greatly retarded by the coming of apartment houses, which has sometimes resulted in destroying the entire section for private house purposes. That, in such sections, very often the apartment house is a mere parasite constructed in order to take advantage of the open spaces and attractive surroundings created by the residential character of the district. Moreover, the coming of one apartment house is followed by others interfering by their height and bulk with the free circulation of air and monopolizing of the rays of sun, which could otherwise would fall upon the smaller homes. So his argument is that apartments are a parasite. They are leeching onto the positive externalities created by single-family homes without contributing anything to themselves. Uh, this used to be thinly veiled. Like, I think this language, like, you know, a little bit bothers a lot of us. It hasn't really changed. We've just started to use some slightly more veiled adjectives and superlatives to describe it. I still hear things like this every day, basically. Another useful term, uh, economic tool for adjudicating housing policy is Coase theorem. Uh, Ronald Coase is a uh, British economist. Coase tells us that regardless of where the lines of ownership are originally designated, we can still achieve an efficient market outcome as long as the lines are clearly defined, the ownership lines are clearly defined, and the transaction costs are low. So let's apply this to, to housing and zoning. For example, imagine that your neighbor wants to park his car in your driveway. You have the space and he does not in his own driveway. He offers to privately pay you $50 a month to do that. Problem solved. Now imagine the driveway sits between the two homes, here and here, and that there's been an unresolved debate involving lawyers and surveyors for decades. The neighbor parks his car on the driveway because he assumes he has the right. You disagree. Problem is not resolved. So what's the difference? Knowing where the property line is and who's responsible for what. As long as you know that, it doesn't matter what's on this side or this side, you're going to come to an efficient conclusion on it. By efficient, economists just mean that uh, there's no uh, deadweight loss. It it's not the same as saying that it's fair. It's just, it's just saying that it's... Uh, uh, you can't make one party better off without making another party worse off. 
is all it means. All right. Uh, so herein lies one of the biggest problems preventing us from finding optimal agreements on land use disputes. Zoning code not only allows property rights and boundaries to be muddled, it is baked into the process. In many cases, this goes off without a hitch, such as when a neighbor builds a single-family home on a lot in a reliably single-family neighborhood. But any form of development requiring any of the panoply of land use alterations subjects the property to the dreaded public hearing process. Rusty knows about this. Options in this toolbox include conditional use permits, planned unit developments, variances, rezoning, a bunch of other stuff. In virtually every jurisdiction in the United States, if you want to do something different from what the government has narrowly defined as your right within that district, you will have to go through one or more of these processes. Now, supposing that we had clear rules about what type of public input was valid in such conversations, one could argue that this was a fair way of adjudicating differences. Because again, there are externalities. Maybe we should hear people out. So for example, a new commercial building could introduce light pollution, which could affect the nearby single-family neighborhood across the street. Okay, we should probably that's valid. We should probably listen to that. But generally, the only criteria provided in the public hearing process is that alterations should not deviate from what is, quote, suitable for the district. And of course, it cannot possibly hamper single-family property values. At this point, you can pull the clown car directly up in front of City Hall because they've got a spot saved for you. Some of the more commonplace issues relate to what you'd expect, things like noise, traffic, parking. Uh, increasingly, I also see concerns related to water availability, forest fire vulnerability, historic preservation, climate impact. I don't suppose any of these things are going to go down anytime soon. As it relates to the topic of housing, concerns are almost exclusively raised related to higher density housing development by a single, near a single family uh, district. Based on the public hearings, the Planning Commission can come to whatever conclusion they feel is best. But with such loosely defined criteria of suitability, not to mention the fact that how do we even empirically decide whether a property value is going to go down due to something being developed? That's not something that anybody's really putting any effort into defining. So commissions often cave to the pressure of the quibbling rabble and just deny. You can't do that. It's not going to work. With these things in mind, let's go back to some of the concepts we've previously defined. We're now in a situation where citizens generally feel empowered to voice their opinion about how other people's land should be used. We have allowed the definition of externalities to eclipse even the definition of property ownership. This augmentation of the concept prevents us from deploying Coast Theorem in a way that the neighborhood, neighboring property owners can even come to an agreement about who ought to be compensated by who and by how much. And because we are also obsessed about protecting the nebulous concept of property values, we've equipped the public with various battering rams and shackles for enforcement. And I can't help but add at this point that these unruly mobs are generally composed of wealthy white people. Now, every time a developer looks to build something, they get out their 12-sided die and throw it on the board, hoping that the combination of the planning commission, the neighbors will agree to their proposition. I think there's a deep irony in this situation. As conservatives, we generally prefer local as opposed to federal control. But by putting control of land use into local hands, we've created a mind-numbing and Byzantine bureaucracy that we all hate. By comparison, no local government in the United States that I'm aware of has any ordinances defining what is and what isn't free speech. Right? It's in the Constitution. At least this hasn't happened yet. It might happen somewhere. 
For that reason, we have fairly clear ground rules, and if those are to be changed, it is handled by lawyers and judges at the federal level. Land use, on the other hand, is open season for any local kook who wants to exert their influence on the process. If you've had any doubts about how upside down the world of public, uh, public policy is right now, consider that Oregon and California, soon to be Washington and Colorado, will follow suit, are implementing state top-down level policies that are more in line with the traditional view of individual property rights. So basically they're saying in any city within these, uh, within these states, any place that says it's single family, you can build duplexes, triplexes, quadplexes. It varies based on state. But they're saying, we're breaking this whole thing down. This isn't working anymore. <clears throat> City planning departments are generally okay with these changes. Planners are generally good with that. They get it. But 65% of the population, higher in rural areas, who own homes will be fighting it tooth and nail. And we're allowing them to. It's baked into the process. All right, so thus far we've mainly focused on where we've been and where we are currently, but I now want to pivot to talk about, a bit more about some of the potential future changes on the zoning front that I'm expecting to occur in the next 10 to 50 years. People always want economists to skip the boring part and get the predictions about the future. In my book, futurists are a notch or two lower than influencers, but alas, here we go. This is the best this is best framed by going back to the fundamental purpose of zoning and the language that is used to justify it. Here's the sort of language you'll see repeated in municipal zoning code across the country. Quote, the purpose of this code is to promote and protect the public health, safety, morals, convenience, and general, general welfare of the city of blank. That's one of my clients, but it could have come from anywhere, literally like the exact same thing I've read many times. If that doesn't worry you, it probably should. We have all learned over the past few years that the idol of safety can be used by government agencies to cram down some rather draconian policies. And safety is in the justification. Uh, at morals, how about that one? I don't know if we could even come to a consensus between liberals and conservatives on the definition of the word morals these days. Uh, general welfare has the potential to be applied very broadly, just, just as it has with the preamble of the Constitution that includes the same words. So one of the things you can expect to happen is that's quite simple and predictable is arguments about the words, about the definitions and what you can get away with. Uh, so there'll be lawsuits that strike right at the heart of these things. Uh, obviously district courts will get the first crack, but I'm not surprised if it'll go to the Supreme Court. Here's two places that I think it'll happen in particular. Homeowners associations versus city planners. This one is already stewing conflict and will come to head at some point. Uh, basically think of this as like HOAs when they want even tighter restrictions than what the city is doing, they put it in their documents and you can't live there if you're not doing it. So, you know, if, if a city plan is China and HOA is North Korea, it's simple. Um, so, but what happens if you're in, I don't know, let's say Gresham, Oregon, and the state suddenly rules that you can, that any single family district has to allow duplexes and triplexes? Well, we're gonna have some conflict, right? Um, so this is coming. I would expect this to happen in Colorado or Texas first because these are cities that have grown a ton in the past 10 years, or states that have grown a ton, and there's ton of, tons of HOAs. Number two, short-term rentals and property rights. I have yet to meet a city in the United States that, that is not at least low-grade freaking out about the impacts of short-term rentals on their community. Uh, if you're not familiar with that term, Airbnbs. Short-term rentals, Airbnbs. The complaints come in many forms and typically from neighbors 
parking, noise, property values, sometimes people dancing naked and by uh, hot tubs and that kind of thing. Uh, displacement of long-term renters. So there's there's that aspect of it, right? Like, oh, we've taken something off of the uh, multifamily roles and now it's just partially occupied only certain times of the year. <clears throat> uh, so that's the case against it. On the other hand, operators have a strong case too, namely, I own it and leave me alone. That's a pretty strong argument. Uh, but if you think about it, this is really at the nexus of the this whole thing that we've been talking about with property rights, property values, externalities, coast theorem, and there's a lot of money at play. So this one is just a ticking time bomb. I give it five years until we see some major legal action on it. <clears throat> Lastly, this is not a policy point, but I can't end the talk without mentioning it. When I think about where we'll be 20 years from now, when all those cheaply built track homes from the 80s, 90s, 2000s come of age, and at the same time, the boomer generation starts to pass away, we're gonna be dealing with a different policy problem at that point. Uh, and then suddenly the biggest policy issue that most places in the US have is not a lack of housing supply like it is now, but an overabundance of dilapidated and undesirable units that are clogging up the urban fringe and suburban areas. I don't think this is gonna be a problem where we are because a lot of people are coming to the West. We live in a pretty desirable place. So the West and the South are generally exempt, uh, but it could hit the Midwest uh, and the Northeast pretty hard. So. Um, just something to keep in mind there. Uh, and then another thought on that front, does anybody remember the Cash for Clunkers program? Federal government said, you got an old car, we'll pay you and we'll destroy it, right? So that was their, their means of stimulating the economy. Well, how about Cash for Shacks? Yep, that's right. Coming to your neighborhood about 20, 30 years from now. The justification is easy to see, right? Overabundance of houses that are um, underinvested in. This will be one of the tools the feds will likely use to rebuild our traditional ur urban centers. I'm not excited about it, but on the other hand, it will make Cleveland a nicer place to visit. So there's that. So conclusion, lastly, there's an appeal to the small government and or libertarians in the crowd tonight. I'd like to, this to serve as a reminder about the importance of applying ourselves to the under the surface issues rather than giving all of our attention to headline grabbing political topics. So conservatives are busy doing a touchdown dance about Target and Bud Light. But honestly, these are just going to be a footnote in history. Uh, when we are principled enough to look at the legal and constitutional side of matters, we can make more lasting change. So I don't mean that everybody needs to be the sort of nerd like me that reads zoning code. What I mean is that we should be willing to stand up for the property rights, not just for our own causes that direct, directly affect us or affect our churches, but in general. So that means, unless you have a really good reason, don't complain about a new apartment complex or a manufactured home park seeking a CUP in your neighborhood. Don't complain about the lack of parking for a new downtown uh, development. Think about it from your principles. What do you actually think about property rights? Uh, instead, argue that residents can pay for the parking if they need it. Instead, argue that that's their property. I don't own a view of my next door neighbor's property. It's just an externality. So if you agree with me that land use rules in the U.S. are preposterously over the top, we need to get to the roots of the land use ordinances and change the expectations and then spend the next 30 years letting that play out. That's all I got. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this presentation from the George Buchanan Forum Conference. We have many more that you can check out at our website at tgbf.com. 
www.freemasonry.org. You can also find us on YouTube or on your favorite podcasting platform. In true free market fashion, we're entirely crowdfunded by the generous support of people like you. If you'd like to help our work, you can set up one-time or recurring donations at tgbf.org. The best way for others to hear about us is from their friends. So please consider liking, subscribing, and sharing our material. We greatly appreciate it.